Chapter 4 The Great Giver He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans 8.32 The above verse supplies us with an instance of divine logic. It contains a conclusion drawn from a premise. The premise is that God delivered up Christ for all his people. Therefore, everything else that is needed by them is sure to be given. There are many examples in holy writ of such divine logic. If God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? Matthew 6. 30. If when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5.10 If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Matthew 7.11 So here in our text, the reasoning is irresistible and goes straight to the understanding and heart. Our text tells of the gracious character of our loving God as interpreted by the gift of His Son. And this not merely for the instruction of our minds, but for the comfort and assurance of our hearts. The gift of His own Son is God's guarantee to His people of all needed blessings. The greater includes the less. His unspeakable spiritual gift is the pledge of all needed temporal mercies. Note in our text four things. 1. The Father's costly sacrifice. This brings before us a side of the truth upon which I fear we rarely meditate. We delight to think of the wondrous love of Christ, whose love was stronger than death, and who deemed no suffering too great for his people. But what must it have meant to the heart of the Father when his beloved left his heavenly home? God is love, and nothing is so sensitive as love. I do not believe that deity is emotionless. The Stoic, as represented by the schoolmen of the Middle Ages, I believe the sending forth of the Son was something which the heart of the Father felt, that it was a real sacrifice on his part. Weigh well, then, the solemn fact which premises the sure promise that follows, God spared not his own Son. Expressive, profound, melting words, knowing full well, as he only could, all that redemption involved. The law, rigid and unbending, insisting upon perfect obedience and demanding death for its transgressors. Justice, stern and inexorable, requiring full satisfaction, refusing to clear the guilt. Yet God withheld not the only sacrifice which could meet the case. God spared not his own son, though knowing full well the humiliation and ignominy of Bethlehem's manger, the ingratitude of men, the not having where to lay his head, the hatred and opposition of the ungodly, the enmity and bruising of Satan. Yet he did not hesitate. God did not relax aught of the holy requirements of his throne, nor abate one whit of the awful curse. 
No, he spared not his own son. The utmost farthing was exacted. The last dregs in the cup of wrath must be drained, even when his beloved cried from the garden, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. God spared him not. Even when vile hands had nailed him to the tree, God cried, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd. Zechariah 13.7 2. The Father's Gracious Design but delivered him up for us all. Here we are told why the Father made such a costly sacrifice. He spared not Christ, that he might spare us. It was not want of love to the Savior, but wondrous, matchless, fathomless love for us. Oh, marvel at the wondrous design of the Most High. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Verily, such love passeth knowledge. Moreover, he made this costly sacrifice, not grudgingly or reluctantly, but freely, out of love. Once God had said to rebellious Israel, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? Hosea 11.8 Infinitely more cause had he to say this of the Holy One, his well-beloved, the one in whom his soul daily delighted. Yet he delivered him up to shame and spitting, to hatred and persecution, to suffering and death itself. And he delivered him up for us, descendants of rebellious Adam, depraved and defiled, corrupt and sinful, vile and worthless. For us who had gone into the far country of alienation from him, and there spent our substance in riotous living. Yes, for us who had gone astray like sheep, each one turning to his own way. For us who were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, in whom there dwelt no good thing. For us who had rebelled against our Creator, hated his holiness, despised his word, broken his commandments, resisted his spirit, for us who richly deserved to be cast into the everlasting burnings and receive those wages which our sins so fully earned. Yes, for thee, fellow Christian, thou art sometimes tempted to interpret your afflictions as tokens of God's hardness, who regard your poverty as a mark of his neglect, and your seasons of darkness as evidences of his desertion. Oh, confess to him now the wickedness of such dishonoring doubtings, and never again question the love of him who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Faithfulness demands that I should point out the qualifying pronoun in our text. It is not God delivered him up for all, but for us all. This is definitely defined in the verses which immediately precede. In verse 31, the question is asked, If God be for us, who can be against us? In verse 30, this us is defined as those whom God did predestinate and has called and justified. The us are the high favorites of heaven, 
the objects of sovereign grace, God's elect, and yet in themselves they are, by nature and practice, deserving of nothing but wrath. But yet, thank God, it is us all, the worst as well as the best, the five hundred pounds debtor equally as much as the fifty pence debtor. 3. The Spirit's Blessed Inference Ponder well the glorious conclusion which the Spirit of God here draws from the wondrous fact stated in the first part of our text. He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How conclusive and how comforting is the inspired reasoning of the Apostle, arguing from the greater to the less. He proceeds to assure the believer of God's readiness to also freely bestow all needed blessings, the gift of his own Son, so ungrudgingly and unreservedly bestowed, is the pledge of every other needed mercy. Here is the unfailing guarantee and talisman of perpetual reassurance to the drooping spirit of the tried believer. If God has done the greater, will he leave the less undone? Infinite love can never change. The love that spared not Christ cannot fail its objects nor begrudge any needed blessings. The sad thing is that our hearts dwell upon what we have not instead of upon what we do have. Therefore the Spirit of God would hear still our restless self-communings and quiet the repinings of ignorance with a soul-satisfying knowledge of the truth by reminding us not only of the reality of our interest in the love of God, but also of the extent of that blessing which flows therefrom. Weigh well what is involved in the logic of this verse. First, the great gift was given unasked. Will he not bestow others for the asking? None of us supplicated God to send forth his beloved, yet he sent him. Now we may come to the throne of grace and there present our request in the virtuous and all-efficacious name of Christ. Second, the one great gift cost him much. Will he not then bestow the lesser gifts, which cost him nothing save the delight of giving? If a friend were to give me a valuable picture, would he begrudge the necessary paper and string to wrap it in? Or if a loved one made me a present of a precious jewel, would he refuse a little box to carry it in? How much less will he who spared not his own son withhold any good thing from them that walk uprightly? Third, the one gift was bestowed when we were enemies. Will not then God be gracious to us now that we have been reconciled and are his friends? If he had designs of mercy for us while we were yet in our sins, how much more will he regard us favorably now that we have been cleansed from all sin by the precious blood of his Son? Four, the comforting promise. Observe the tense that is used here. 
It is not, How has he not with him also freely given us all things? Though this is also true, for even now are we heirs of God. Romans 8:17. But our text goes further than this. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The second half of this wondrous verse contains something more than a record of the past. It supplies reassuring confidence both for the present and for the future. No time limits are to be set upon this shall, both now in the present and forever and ever in the future, God shall manifest himself as the great giver. Nothing for his glory and for our good will he withhold. The same God who delivered up Christ for us all is without variableness or shadow of turning. Mark the manner in which God gives. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God does not have to be coaxed. There is no reluctance in him for us to overcome. He is ever more willing to give than we are to receive. Again, he is under no obligation to any. If he were, he would bestow of necessity instead of giving freely. Ever remember that he has a perfect right to do with his own as he pleases. He is free to give to whom he will. The word freely not only signifies that God is under no constraint, but also means that he makes no charge for his gifts. He places no price on his blessings. God is no retailer of mercies or barterer of good things. If he were, justice would require him to charge exactly what each blessing was worth, and then who among the children of Adam could find the wherewithal? No, blessed be his name. God's gifts are without money and without price, unmerited and unearned. Finally, rejoice over the comprehensiveness of this promise. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The Holy Spirit here would regale us with the extent of God's wondrous grant. What is it you need, fellow Christian? Is it pardon? Then has he not said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just? to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 Is it grace? Then has he not said, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 Is it a thorn in the flesh? This too will be given. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Second Corinthians 12:7. Is it rest? Then heed the Savior's invitation. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11:28. Is it comfort? Is he not the God of all comfort? Second Corinthians 1:3. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 
Is it temporal mercies that the reader is in need of? Are your circumstances adverse so that you are filled with dismal forebodings? Does your cruise of oil and barrel of meal look as though they will soon be quite empty? Then spread your need before God and do it in simple childlike faith. Think you that he will bestow the greater blessings of grace and deny the lesser ones of providence? No, my God shall supply all your need. Philippians 4:19. True, he has not promised to give all you ask, for we often ask amiss. Mark the qualifying clause. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We often desire things which would come in between us and Christ if they were granted. Therefore does God in his faithfulness withhold them. Here then are four things which should bring comfort to every renewed heart. The Father's costly sacrifice. Our God is a giving God, and no good thing does he withhold from them that walk uprightly. The Father's gracious design. It was for us that Christ was delivered up. It was our highest and eternal interests that he had at heart. The Spirit's infallible inference. The greater includes the less. The unspeakable gift guarantees the bestowment of all other needed favors. The comforting promise its sure foundation, its present and future scope, its blessed extent, are for the assuring of our hearts and the peace of our minds. May the Lord add his blessing to this little meditation. Chapter 5 The Divine Rememberer Who remembered us in our low estate, for his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136.23 who remembered us. This is in striking and blessed contrast from our forgettings of him. Like every other faculty of our beings, the memory has been affected by the fall and bears on it the marks of depravity. This is seen from its power to retain what is worthless and the difficulty encountered to hold fast that which is good. A foolish nursery rhyme or song heard in youth is carried with us to the grave. A helpful sermon is forgotten within twenty-four hours, but most tragic and solemn of all is the ease with which we forget God and his countless mercies. But, blessed be his name, God never forgets us. He is the faithful rememberer. We were very much impressed when, on consulting the concordance, we found that the first five times the word remember is used in Scripture, in each case it is connected with God. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. Genesis 8, 1. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Genesis 9.16 And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt Genesis 19:29, etc. The first time it is used of man we read 
Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forget him. Genesis 40:23. The historical reference here is to the children of Israel when they were toiling amid the brick kilns of Egypt. Truly, they were in a low estate, a nation of slaves, groaning beneath the lash of merciless taskmasters, oppressed by a godless and heartless king. But when there was none other eye to pity, Jehovah looked upon them and heard their cries of distress. He remembered them in their low estate. And why? Exodus 2:24 and 25 tells us, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto it. And history is to repeat itself. Israel's lowest estate has not yet been reached. Fearful as have been their experiences during the last 19 centuries, the blackest hour of their dark night is yet before them. After the present dispensation of grace is ended, yet sorer judgments will descend on the Jews than those which their fathers suffered in the house of bondage. The great tribulation will be the time when their acutest sufferings will be experienced. But even then, God will remember them. As it is written, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, and he shall be saved out of it. Jeremiah 37. He will remember his covenant with their ancestors. Leviticus 24, 42 and 44, etc. But our text is not to be limited to the literal seed of Abraham. It has reference to the whole Israel of God. Galatians 6, 16. The saints of this present day of salvation also unite in saying, Who remembered us in our low estate? How low was our estate by nature? As fallen creatures we lay in our misery and wretchedness, unable to deliver or help ourselves. But in wondrous grace, God took pity on us. His strong arm reached down and rescued us. He came to where we lay, saw us, and had compassion on us. Luke 10:33. Therefore can each Christian say, He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. Psalm 42. And why did he remember us? The very word remember tells of previous thoughts of love and mercy towards us. As it was with the children of Israel in Egypt, so it was with us in our ruined condition by nature. He remembered his covenant, that covenant into which he had entered with our surety from everlasting. As we read in Titus 1, 2 of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world was, promised to Christ that he would give that eternal life to those for whom our covenant head should transact. Yes. God remembered that he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4. 
Therefore did he in due time bring us from death unto life. Yet this blessed word goes beyond our initial experience of God's saving grace. Historically, our text refers not only to God remembering his people while they were in Egypt, but also, as the context shows, while they were in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Israel's experiences in the desert but foreshadow the saints' walk through this hostile world. And Jehovah's remembrance of them manifested in the daily supply of their every need adumbrated the rich provisions of His grace for us while we journey to our home on high. Our present estate here on earth is but a lowly one, for we do not now reign as kings, yet is our God ever mindful of us, and hourly does He minister to us who remembered us in our low estate. Not always are we permitted to dwell upon the mount, as in the natural world, so in our experiences. Bright and sunny days give place to dark and cloudy ones. Summer is followed by winter. Disappointments, losses, afflictions, bereavements came our way, and we were brought low. And oft times just when we seemed to most need the comfort of friends, they failed us. Those we counted on to help forgot us. But even then, there was one who remembered us and showed himself to be the same yesterday and today and forever. And then did we prove afresh that his mercy endureth forever who remembered us in our low estate. There are some who may read these lines that will think of another application of these words, namely, the time when you left your first love, when your heart grew cold and your life became worldly, when you were in a sadly backslidden state. Then indeed was your estate a low one, yet even then did our faithful God remember thee. Yes, each of us has cause to say with the psalmist, He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Psalm 23.3 Who remembered us in our low estate. Still another application of these words may be made, namely, to the last great crises of the saint as he passes out of this world. As the vital spark of the body grows dim and nature fails, then too is our estate low. But then also the Lord remembereth us, for his mercy endureth forever. Man's extremity is but God's opportunity. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. It is then that he remembers us by making good his comforting promises. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 41, 10. 
who remembered us in our low estate. Surely, this text will furnish us with suitable words to express our thanksgiving when we are at home, present with the Lord. How we shall then praise Him for His covenant faithfulness, His matchless grace, and His loving kindness for having remembered us in our low estate. Then shall we know, even as we are known, our very memories will be renewed, perfected, and we shall remember all the way the Lord our God hath led us. Deuteronomy 8.2 Recalling with gratitude and joy His faithful remembrances, acknowledging with adoration that His mercy endureth forever. Chapter 6 Tried by Fire But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job 23.10 Job here corrects himself. In the beginning of the chapter we find him saying, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Verses 1 and 2 Poor Job felt that his lot was unbearable. But he recovers himself. He checks his hasty outburst and revises his impetuous decision. How often we all have to correct ourselves. Only one has ever walked this earth who never had occasion to do so. Job here comforts himself. He could not fathom the mysteries of providence, but God knew the way he took. Job had diligently sought the calming presence of God, but for a time in vain. Behold, I go forward, and he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. Verses 8 and 9. But he consoled himself with this blessed fact, though I cannot see God. What is a thousand times better, he can see me. He knoweth. One above is neither unmindful nor indifferent to our lot. If he notices the fall of a sparrow, if he counts the hairs of our heads, of course he knows the way that I take. Job here enunciates a noble view of life, how splendidly optimistic he was. He did not allow his afflictions to turn him into a skeptic. He did not permit the sore trials and troubles through which he was passing to overwhelm him. He looked at the bright side of the dark cloud, God's side, hidden from sense and reason. He took a long view of life. He looked beyond the immediate fiery trials and said that the outcome would be gold refined. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Three great truths are expressed here. Let us briefly consider each separately. 1. The divine knowledge of my life. He knoweth the way that I take. The omniscience of God is one of the wondrous attributes of deity. For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. Job 34.21 
the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 13.3 Spurgeon said, One of the greatest tests of experimental religion is, What is my relationship to God's omniscience? What is your relationship to it, dear reader? How does it affect you? Does it distress or comfort you? Do you shrink from the thought of God knowing all about your way? Perhaps a lying, selfish, hypocritical way. To the sinner, this is a terrible thought. He denies it, or if not, he seeks to forget it. But to the Christian, here is real comfort. How cheering to remember that my Father knows all about my trials, my difficulties, my sorrows, my efforts to glorify Him. Precious truth for those in Christ, harrowing thought for all out of Christ, that the way I am taking is fully known to and observed by God. He knoweth the way that I take. Men did not know the way that Job took. He was grievously misunderstood, and for one with a sensitive temperament to be misunderstood is a sore trial. His very friends thought he was a hypocrite. They believed he was a great sinner and being punished by God. Job knew that he was an unworthy saint, but not a hypocrite. He appealed against their censorious verdict. He knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Here is instruction for us when like circumstanced. Fellow believer, your fellow men, yes, and your fellow Christians may misunderstand you and misinterpret God's dealings with you, but console yourself with the blessed fact that the omniscient one knoweth. He knoweth the way that I take. In the fullest sense of the word, Job himself did not know the way that he took, nor do any of us. Life is profoundly mysterious, and the passing of the years offer no solution, nor does philosophizing help us. Human volition is a strange enigma. Consciousness bears witness that we are more than automatons. The power of choice is exercised by us in every move we make, and yet it is plain that our freedom is not absolute. There are forces brought to bear upon us, both good and evil, which are beyond our power to resist. Both heredity and environment exercise powerful influences upon us. Our surroundings and circumstances are factors which cannot be ignored. And what of providence which shapes our destinies? Ah, how little do we know the way which we take. Said the prophet, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps, Jeremiah 10:23. Here we enter the realm of mystery, and it is idle to deny it. Better far to acknowledge with the wise man. Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? Proverbs 20:24. 20, 
in the narrower sense of the term, Job did know the way which he took. What that way was, he tells us in the next two verses. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job 23, 11 and 12. The way Job chose was the best way, the scriptural way, God's way, his way. What do you think of that way, dear reader? Was it not a grand selection? Ah, not only patient, but wise, Job. Have you made a similar choice? Can you say, My foot hath held his steps, his way have I kept, and not declined? Verse 11. If you can, praise him for his enabling grace. If you cannot, confess with shame your failure to appropriate his all-sufficient grace. Get down on your knees at once and unbosom yourself to God. Hide and keep back nothing. Remember, it is written, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 Does not verse 12 explain your failure? My failure, dear reader. Is it not because we have not trembled before God's commandments and because we have so lightly esteemed His word that we have declined from His way? Then let us, even now and daily, seek grace from on high to heed His commandments and hide His word in our hearts. He knoweth the way that I take. Which way are you taking? The narrow way which leadeth unto life or the broad road that leadeth to destruction? Make certain on this point, dear friend. Scripture declares, So every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Romans 14:12. But you need not be deceived or uncertain. The Lord declared, I am the way. John 14:6. Two, divine testing. When he hath tried me. The fining pot is for silver, and the furnace for gold. But the Lord trieth the hearts. Proverbs seventeen three. This was God's way with Israel of old, and it is his way with Christians now. Just before Israel entered Canaan, as Moses reviewed their history since leaving Egypt, he said... And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee, and to prove thee, and to know what is in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. Deuteronomy 8, 2. In the same way, God tries, tests, proves, humbles us. When he hath tried me, If we realized this more, we would bear up better in the hour of affliction and be more patient under suffering. The daily irritations of life, the things which annoy so much, what is their meaning? Why are they permitted? Here is the answer. God is trying you. 
That is the explanation, in part at least, of that great disappointment, that crushing of your earthly hopes, that great loss. God was, is, testing you. God is trying your temper, your courage, your faith, your patience, your love, your fidelity. When he hath tried me, how frequently God's saints see only Satan as the cause of their troubles. They regard the great enemy as responsible for much of their sufferings. But there is no comfort for the heart in this. We do not deny that the devil does bring about much that harass us, but above Satan is the Lord Almighty. The devil cannot touch a hair of our heads without God's permission, and when he is allowed to disturb and distract us, even then it is only God using him to try us. Let us learn, then, to look beyond all secondary causes and instruments to that one who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1, 11. This is what Job did. In the opening chapter of the book, which bears his name, we find Satan obtaining permission to afflict God's servant. He used the Sabaeans to destroy Job's herds. Verse 15, he sent the Chaldeans to slay his servants. Verse 17, he caused a great wind to kill his children. Verse 19, and what was Job's response? This, he exclaimed, The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 21. Job looked beyond the human agents, beyond Satan, who employed them, to the Lord who controlleth all. He realized that it was the Lord trying him. We get the same thing in the New Testament. To the suffering saints at Smyrna, John wrote, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. Revelation 2.10 Their being cast into prison was simply God trying them. How much we lose by forgetting this. What a stay for the trouble-tossed heart to know that no matter what form the testing may take, no matter what the agent which annoys, it is God who is trying his children. What a perfect example the Savior sets us when he was reproached in the garden and Peter drew his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. The Savior said, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? John 18:11. Men were about to vent their awful rage upon him. The serpent would bruise his heel, but he looks above and beyond them. Dear reader, no matter how bitter its contents, infinitely less than that which the Savior drained, let us accept the cup as from the Father's hand. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.